Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Nate. If I have not yet had the privilege of meeting you, thanks for being here. Everybody online, thanks for tuning in. Um, I'm looking at all of my friends who went to Arizona for the winter. It's so cold here right now. Oh, my goodness. It's going to get colder. You're tough. We're going to make this. We're going to make this. I am um, excited about this weekend jumping farther into this concept of Messiah. So we've talked about threads throughout the whole year. And this is the thread that probably permeates the scriptures, old and new, more than any other. In the Old Testament, the word Messiah is used a little over 400 times. So what is Messiah? Uh, It is, we would literally translate it, the promised one. This concept that someone would come from God to right what's wrong is first introduced in Genesis chapter 3 where calamity has happened, the human experience has fallen apart, relationship with God has has dissipated, and God looks at Mary and he says, Mary, one day through you, I'm going to send the promised one who will be able to crush the head of the serpent, the serpent that was involved in this whole temptation, that one day somebody's going to come who will make what is wrong right, what is broken He'll find healing. He'll bring it towards fruition. And then throughout the Old Testament, over 400 times, this concept, this this admonition to hold out hope, no matter who was occupying the land of the Hebrew people, no matter how abysmal things were, no matter how bad the economy, God would speak through prophets and he would say, hang in there. One day, someone, Messiah will come and he will make everything new. In the New Testament, there was a group of, a fairly small group of Jewish people who recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They now use the term Christ, which is a Greek translation of Messiah. Christ literally means anointed one. And as these few individuals said, we actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah and we believe that he came to make everything wrong right. Over 500 times in the New Testament, they use this term Christ, the the anointed chosen one to make what is wrong right. So there's this beautiful thread that weaves its way through. And it's just a story that resonates with humanity, that we needed someone to save us. Well, here's what I'd like to do this weekend. I want to talk a little bit about doubts, okay? A little little bit about doubts. Um, I think we have an audience that's varied. There's a group of people who would say, you know what, I, I am I'm convinced, and maybe you've been convinced for decades, you made a decision a long time ago that Jesus was the Messiah, and I just applaud that. <laughs> that is beautiful. You're like, Jesus is the promised one, and he's made me new, and he, one day he'll make the whole world new, and uh, man, that's just a beautiful thing. But there will also be some of us who would say, maybe we're a little unresolved, that's what we call it, 
spiritually unresolved, you're like, yeah, I, like I'm really processing this and the, the story is beautiful, but there's some elements that are really challenging. And maybe you're even looking at your own life and you're, you're saying, gosh, if he's really Messiah, why isn't the world better? Why isn't my life better? Why is everything so difficult? If Jesus was the Messiah, it seems like life should be different. And then there's another group of us. And this is the group that's really going to relate to the text we're about to read. People who had an assurance that Jesus was the Messiah, but life has changed dramatically. And you're facing something, a broken heart, a broken body, broken expectations, and you're feeling a bit of disillusionment and you, you deal with doubts. I can 100% relate to this. You're dealing with doubts and you're wondering. I mean, at one point, I was absolutely convinced that Jesus was my Messiah, my promised one. But now I'm struggling. And here's what I want to read. I, I want to read from the life of a man named John the Baptist. Let me tell you a little bit about John the Baptist. John is Jesus's cousin, a little bit older, just a few months older. And John comes on the scene in Israel in this really dramatic fashion. He is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And apparently people are coming in droves, tens of thousands of people. And John is saying something that no one has said. The Hebrew people are devout, they're religious, and they're doing their best to apply the first two thirds of the Bible to their lives as best as they possibly can. They're, they're living in this Roman occupied time. And John is saying this, hey, the biggest problem isn't who occupies our land or who's in power. There's a deeper problem. And he says, the problem is our hearts. It's human sin. So he's calling them to uh, Hebrew is mikvah, baptism. He's calling them to ba be baptized, but not to wash off the filth of other people. He says, I want you to be baptized for the remittance of sins, for what's broken inside of you. And so people are responding. And one day, guess who shows up? His cousin, Jesus. John's like peculiar in every aspect. We're, we're told that he lives in the desert. His diet consists of locusts and wild honey. Uh, one sounds good, the other not, right? Like the honey part, I could do. And he wears camel hair. So he's like, just imagine a guy who's completely out of fashion. You know, wearing itchy camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey. And it seems quite likely that he has taken a Nazarite vow, which has its roots in the Old Testament. And as a Nazarite, you pledged a couple things to God. One is you would never drink any alcohol. You'd never be around any type of corpse. And the third thing is you'd never cut your hair. So like, get your mental image of John the Baptist. Like his beard's this long, his hair's out here. He's wearing camel hair. He's just snacking on a locust as you come up to be baptized. And John has this experience where he sees his cousin Jesus in a brand new light. John is going to be the first person in Jesus's adult life to publicly identify him as the Messiah. Let's read this together. John chapter one. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, a complete messianic theme here. 
So lambs are always associated with, with sin and the sacrificial system. And John, in front of all the people that have gathered, he looks at Jesus and just this emphatic statement comes out of his mouth. Look, look at him. He's the lamb of God who, this is a huge statement as well, who takes away the sin of the world. Now I'm sure the listeners don't even know what that means, but look, that person right there, he's the one that's sent from God and he is going to do something that I cannot do. He is going to do something that the religious system that we've been applying ourselves to for centuries cannot do. It's actually gonna take away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So John's saying chronologically he comes after me, but he surpasses me because he's the ancient of days, right? I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, my whole existence, this whole thing I'm doing in the desert is pointing towards him. Then John gave this testimony. I saw, like literally I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. So the spirit of God had happened infrequently in the Old Testament. It happened in the spirit of God would come upon somebody, but then he would leave. It was like uh, for a prophet so he could say something or a leader so that he could lead, but then he left. So John's saying this, what I saw was this. The forging together of humanity and divinity. And the spirit didn't leave. This, this is a different story than anything the Jewish people had ever seen in their history. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This messianic moment. This is the one that all of our ancestors have been praying for for centuries. This is the one that God promised in Genesis 3.15. This is the one who God said, hold on, I'm going to send a solution. And John, he publicly says, that's him. That's the Messiah. Now, let's pause for a moment and let's fast forward a couple years, probably about two and a half years. John is no longer at the Jordan River. He's now in a prison cell. He has been imprisoned for doing the right thing. So one of the men in power is, he's one of the Herods. There's multiple Herods. But Herod, he's just a scoundrel. And one of the things that he's doing right now is he's living with his brother's wife and they're involved in this illicit relationship. And John the Baptist, who like, right, he's a prophet. So he just goes to Herod and he goes, Herod, what you're doing is not okay. I want you to repent. You need to make this right. And Herod and this woman are deeply offended. And so they take John the Baptist, they put him in prison. We don't even know how long he's been there, but it seems like some time has passed, months have passed. So John's context is completely different two and a half years later. He was with tens of thousands of people, baptizing them, seeing this revival, anticipating the Messiah. He points Jesus out for the first time in Jesus' life publicly. And now here's what John's days consist of. 
one more day in prison. And there's very little hope. And the more the months pass by, the less hope there is. And in this, this prison cell, something begins to happen in John the Baptist's mind. Doubts. Doubts start to come to the surface. And he was emphatic. He was sure just a couple of years ago. He saw Jesus. He goes, I saw, I saw divinity come upon him. Like, this is the moment. And now John's wondering things like this. If Jesus is the Messiah, why am I still a prisoner? If, if Jesus is the Messiah that I thought he was, why are there people like Herod who control my life? Why is it that I did the right thing and now I'm suffering for doing the right thing? So his doubts are just emerging. And we see this come to fruition in the book of Matthew, chapter 11. We're going to read several verses. We'll pause and then we'll read the remainder of it in a bit. So from prison, John sends messengers. And and this is what we read in Matthew 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. That's northern Israel. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? There has been a profound transformation in John's life. He was sure, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is the chosen one. But months of imprisonment, months of unmet expectations, months of confusion, confinement. Now he is literally wondering, are are you the one? He sends messengers, like, you got to help me out because I am so filled with skepticism and doubt at this point. Should I just be waiting for somebody else? Is there somebody else who gets me out of prison? If you as the Messiah aren't going to do it, maybe you're not the Messiah. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Remember John had heard and seen the spirit come upon uh, Jesus like a dove. He goes, now I want you to send this message back to John. By the way, notice, Jesus doesn't go like, are you kidding me? My own cousin? Like you, you saw it, you experienced it. Jesus is like, no, no, here's my answer. When you're in doubt, here's what I want you to do. Go back and report what you see in here. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear. This is all about human restoration, right? This is all about people who are broken, finding hope and healing. The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This isn't just for the privileged. This is like everybody who needs it. This is available. And then notice this statement. We're going to have to talk about this. Jesus looks at his disciples and said, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus acknowledges that he can be really difficult. He can make people stumble. Okay, let's talk about this for a moment. What do we do when we doubt? Where do we go with doubts? 
Is it, is it okay to have doubts? How do you eliminate doubts? What does God think about our doubts? Number one, when we're experiencing doubt and uncertainty, here's the first thing we read. Elevate your perspective. Elevate your perspective. So here's what Jesus says. I want, I want you to tell John this. I want you to tell John that things are happening in people's lives that do not naturally happen. I want you to tell John that even though his context is abysmal, even though he's not freed from prison, even though, by the way, John's going to lose his life, he'll be beheaded. Even though he doesn't have much hope, I want you to tell him to raise his perspective and to look out and see what is happening in other people's lives. So I think this principle exists for human beings then and now, is that when my life has become difficult, when I'm struggling, when God hasn't met my expectations, I begin to look and I begin to ask these questions and they become more and more internally focused. Like, why me? Why, why is my body broken? Why is my heart broken? Why hasn't Jesus made me happy and joyful and all these things that people said would happen in my life? This is my context. I did the right thing and I'm being punished for it. Couldn't Jesus just like show up and look at the prison walls and say rocks fall and say chains come off? I mean, John had to have been fantasizing about this that maybe my cousin is gonna come and like, I'll be free and I'll walk out of this prison and my life will be what it was once in the past. And here's what Jesus says to people who are struggling because life isn't what you thought it would be. He says, I want you to look up. You gotta look past your own world and your own hurt and your own circumstances. And I want you to look to see what God is doing, that God is afoot and that people are being restored, that life is being made new. And, what does that look like in our world? Okay, when I'm struggling because my life is difficult, here's what I think God does. This is Nate. I want you to look up. I want you to look up at hundreds and hundreds of addicts who get to come through these walls and find freedom for the very first time in their life. I want you to look up I want you to know that, talk to a friend this week, the 45 women at the women's prison here in Billings are joining us for service this weekend. They're not walking out of their cells, but there's a whole type of other prisons that God is freeing them from. I want you to look up, Nate. I want you to look where you see men who have been living irresponsibly and living selfishly, who are really understanding what it means to be a man, not a cultural definition, but a biblical definition and are stepping up to responsibility and sacrificial living. Look up. I want you to look at hundreds and hundreds of women who have been told culturally that their identity should be based on their looks or how they dress or all these things. But these women are saying, no, 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 I don't base my identity on those things. I base my identity on the fact that I am a daughter of a king. I want you to look up. I was in a series of meetings recently and uh, it was with a certain group of churches that we associate with. 
And um, in the United States, it's just been plateaued. It's, it's our family church, it's plateaued for about 10 years. It just feels a little abysmal. We've got 1,600 churches and we had 1,600 churches five years ago. And, and then somebody in the room who leads our, our missions organization just cleared their throat and said, <clears throat> I know that things are tough in the US, but did you know that in the last few years, we've grown to 72,000 churches globally. <laughs> like, that's really good news, right? Like, look up. I just read uh, from a group called the Philanthropy Forum. They just published this study. Uh, that in 2022, Christians in the United States of America gave $300 billion to address poverty, 300 billion, right? You're gonna love this. That is more than the United States government, <laughs> significantly more. So those are the things like when, when I'm in doubt and I'm like, why, why am I still in prison? And why is it not working out for me? Jesus says, you, you gotta have a bigger perspective. You gotta look and see that God takes selfish people and makes them generous people. God takes broken people and makes them whole. God takes people who, like, they just can't get along in their marriage. And he, he can bring healing and hope. Look up and see what I am doing. So in the midst of my doubt, here's this, this first instruction that Jesus so kindly gives to John the Baptist. Get a bigger perspective, John. You can't see much in that jail cell. But there are things that are happening in this world that you can't explain. Here's the second point. Don't be offended by the person of Jesus. This is just kind of peculiar, isn't it? <laughs> that Jesus looks at his disciples and it, like he just acknowledges, this isn't always gonna be easy. And you're just really blessed if you're not offended by me. Who was offended by Jesus? You know, most of the time it was Religious people. Who was most offended by Jesus when he walked and talked on this earth? It was the religious establishment. And here's why. They created these like nice little theology boxes. And God was totally predictable for them. And they studied and they learned. And then Jesus shows up. And one of the reasons that most people couldn't acknowledge him as Messiah is he didn't fit into the box of expectation. And so Jesus would look at someone and go, your sins are forgiven. And the religious establishment would go, are you kidding me? They've been so naughty. They need to pay for their sins. How can you just forgive them? Jesus would dialogue with people that the religious establishment thought, no, those people are completely beyond the bounds of God's love. In order for them to be loved by God, they're gonna have to reposition themselves. They're gonna have to change their lives and then God could love them. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. I, I, I love her. I love him. And the religious establishment would go, but you don't know what they did. And Jesus would go, yeah, I do. And I still, I still love them. So people are offended by Jesus for all different types of reasons. John is dealing with an offense towards Jesus. And I get it. Yeah, your life is not good, buddy. Like, chance of Herod letting you go, not good. You've been in prison for a long time. Jesus isn't showing up to let you free. 
You can just develop a resentment towards Jesus. What, what does it look like in our world today to be offended by Jesus? Let me give you a couple examples. I can be offended by Jesus because he disappoints me. And then that disappointment moves to disillusionment. So, like if I could have introduced you to a 22-year-old Nate who was like a very young pastor and had just graduated from Bible college, it's so embarrassing. But when I was 22, I had it figured out. Man, I knew everything about God and what he would do and how he would react. And I had all these like nice spiritual formulas that I had learned that if I do A and B, God always does C, right? So I, I, I honor him, I put him first, and then here's what God does, he'll bless me, right? I had all these concepts that, God, you will meet my expectations and I will determine how you will behave in this world, right? Here's what happens, a little time passes and the formulas aren't always met. This is what John is experiencing. I stood up to do the right thing and now I'm in prison and it's pretty likely they're gonna kill me. So there's disillusionment, there's disappointment. You get offended by Jesus. How else do we get offended by Jesus? He doesn't meet our timelines. Ever prayed a prayer like this? Dear God, I really need you to do something and I'm giving you until June, right? <laughs> like this has to be fixed by June. And then June comes and goes. And he didn't meet my expectations. I can become offended by him. I can become offended by him because there's times in your spiritual life where he is very tangible. There are these moments, I've had dozens of conversations. There are these moments where I felt God and I sensed him and I knew he was close. And then there's moments in your life where it's like, I, I don't feel him, I don't sense him. He seems distant and you can be offended because God, I want those same feelings that I had in the past. I can become offended by Jesus because he calls me to surrender in obedience. He says, as the creator of human life, let me give you some moral parameters in terms of how you handle relationships, sexuality, money, and to be fully human, this is where I want you to live. And we say, but, but, but I wanna live out here. And we become offended by Jesus. What do we do about this? There's, there's a man named Asaph, who's one of the psalmists. And he writes Psalm 73. And in this Psalm, I'll paraphrase it for you. He said, my foot, almost slipped and I almost gave up. I almost threw in the towel. And here's why. It's because I was living my life the right way and I watched wicked people around me prosper. I watched people who had no regard for God whatsoever and they seemed to live these painless, easy lives. And that's not my formula. He says, I almost gave up. I almost gave in. That's, that's what it's like to be offended at God. You just look and you're like, God, that's not fair. So what do we do with that? Ultimately, I think in order to not be offended by Jesus, I have to be willing to say this. You are the Messiah. You are the Lord. 
Even if, for John, even if I live the rest of my days in this prison cell, is not what I thought, this is not what I hoped for. And yet, I refuse to be offended. I refuse to determine what my future is. You're a Messiah, even if I never leave this place. And in each of our lives, when doubts creep in, do I want to be offended by Jesus? Or do I say, God, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> but you're still Lord. You're still the Messiah. And then here's the third thing. Questions in faith can exist side by side. I really believe that they can. So uh, you've got this new thing that's happened the past couple of years. Uh, Christian leaders, people who've written books, and they move to this point of crisis in their lives. Then they go through what people call deconstruction, where oftentimes all these questions overwhelm them and they deconstruct their faith entirely and say, hey, what I wrote that book about, eh, I was wrong. A book about how to trust God, eh, I was wrong, right? So there's movement towards deconstruction. And I wonder if part of what is behind that is this, this thought that you cannot have any questions and have faith simultaneously. I used to feel so, so guilty when I had questions, right? Like, you're just like, no, get rid of them. I believe, I believe, I believe. No more, no more doubts, no more doubts. And I thought like I could overcome it. I talked to a gal last night and she was raised in a particular vein of Christianity. She's 60 years old and she said this. She said, I have felt guilty my entire life and ashamed because I still have questions. She just thought the two can't exist simultaneously. Here's what I found, okay? This is a little like personal disclosure. Over the years, I have developed more and more questions. Not less and less, more and more. But I think my questions are better. Simultaneously, I've developed more and more faith. There are just a lot of things. If my 22-year-old brain could have understood God, that's a mighty little God, isn't it? Like, he's not that big if I, I, got my, I got the whole thing figured out. The longer I live, the more mystery and awe there is. and The more, like, I've got questions, but I've got faith in the midst of my questions. Now, you can go through tragedy, and I can bury people at far too young of an age. And I think, God, I don't understand that, but I still believe. I still believe questions and faith can exist simultaneously. I don't have to feel guilt and shame. In fact, read the Psalms sometimes. Sometimes actually the Psalms bug me because I think about three quarters of them are people just whining at God. Just like, it's so hard. It's not fair, right? But the ancient Hebrews just felt completely comfortable going to God with their questions. Like, God, why is this happening to me? David, this warrior guy, sometimes he's like a big baby, isn't he? It's like, oh, I don't like it, Lord. And God's like, go bring it. Let's talk about it. I'll listen to you. I'll listen to that. So the two can exist simultaneously. Now I want to finish this passage and look at our last point. So we'll pick up back in Matthew chapter 11. As John's disciples were leaving. Okay, so Jesus just said to them, go back and tell John. Go tell John 
what you see, what you hear about the restoration of humanity and, and like, don't be offended by me. So as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Okay, back when John was out baptizing on the Jordan River, a reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Uh-uh, camel hair, right? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah. I tell you, I am more than a prophet. This is the one. You remember that John the Baptist said about Jesus, this is the one? Now Jesus says about John, this is the one about whom it is written. And here's what's gonna happen. This, this section right here is from the book of Isaiah. John declared this early in the book when they came and said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? John says, no, 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 no. It goes back to Isaiah and he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He roots his identity in the ancient Jewish scriptures written 750 years before he lived. And here's what Jesus does. When John is uncertain, he roots John's identity back in that same passage. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So here's my question. How does Jesus respond to my doubt? Here's point number four. When I forget who Jesus is, he doesn't forget who I am. When, when I am completely lost and I'm not sure what I believe anymore, he knows who I am. Imagine how this could have come about. That Jesus could have looked at his disciples and said, man, you kidding me? The one guy who saw it all happen, the guy that first publicly identified me, He's doubting me. All oh, you people, little faith. God, I can't believe this. Believe, people. Believe. But instead of being offended by John's doubts, when I forget who Jesus is, he remembers who I am. And he says, guys, I want to tell you something about John, who just expressed his doubts. There's nobody greater. This guy is a prophet. This guy is who Isaiah talked about. Jesus believes in John even when John doesn't believe in him. And I believe that is true. When we're not sure who Jesus is, when we're dealing with our struggles and our doubts, Jesus still believes in you. He does not give up on you. He still says, no, no, that one, he's my son. She's my daughter. She's struggling right now, but I still believe. <laughs> I know who they are. I created them. I've given them their identity. So I can deal with my doubts and I can go to them and I don't have to worry and shame. Jesus still believes in me when I'm not sure what I believe about him. Let me give you one other example. Uh, one of the disciples, there's, there's 11 that remain. One of them's named Thomas. We often refer to him as Doubting Thomas. He happens to be out of the room the first time that Jesus appears after his death. So the resurrected Jesus appears in like, like bummer timing for Thomas. He's down at like... 7-Eleven or something. And uh, like he walks back with his big gulp 
And he's like, hey guys, what's going on? And they're like, you're not going to believe what just happened. Jesus showed up in this room. And Thomas looks at them. These are his 10 like buddies. He goes, you guys are crazy. It's mass delusion. There is no way. And Thomas says this, unless I can put my fingers in the holes that the nails drove in his wrist and I can see, I can touch where the spear pierced him in his side. I will never believe. I need verifiable proof. Well, a couple days later, who shows up? Jesus shows up. And I love this. He's not mad at Thomas. He just shows up in the room and the first person he addresses, he's like, hey, Tommy. He goes, Jesus already knew his doubts. By the way, like you don't have to hide your doubts because Jesus knows them. He goes, hey, Thomas, yeah, come touch. Like, right here, go for it. Thomas is like, no, thank you. <laughs> like, I'm good. I, I'm so good right now. Like, I, I don't need to touch. Let your faith, let your questions exist simultaneously. There are moments, there are times of crisis in your life where you'll think, is he really the Messiah? Lift your head. Look beyond your perspective. Look beyond your broken expectations. Look beyond your disillusionment. See what God has been doing on planet earth through the person of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. Let that build some faith in you. Figure out how not to be offended by Jesus. Because Jesus acknowledges. He goes, the way I'm doing things doesn't meet everybody's expectations. It's not as fast as they want it to be. It's not as dramatic as they want it to be. I came to establish a new kingdom. Find a way to say, I don't understand, but you're still Lord. You are still Lord. I still surrender to something bigger than I am. Let your questions and your faith, let them coexist and acknowledge that there are some things that we don't comprehend and simultaneously build a faith that is thicker and stronger than ever before. And know this, when you're not sure about Jesus, he's still sure about you. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.